Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. It is the 45th anniversary of the opening day of Star Wars. I do want to point out that I attended the 4.30 show on that opening day at the Lowe's Astor Plaza in Times Square. Uh, we now work four blocks away from what was the Lowe's Astor Plaza, but is now some kind of uh, concert venue that name keeps changing. So I was there. I think the second show, maybe the third show of the day. So I believe that I get my nerd credit there. And uh, my son is going to run home from school and watch uh, the movie I call Star Wars, but which he, like everybody his generation, calls A New Hope, which is not its name. Its name is Star Wars. It's not A New Hope. Anyway, so happy, uh, happy May the 4th be with you day. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, the man with so many titles that I can't remember what they all are. He's at the gray center of something or other at George Mason. He's at the American Enterprise Institute. He writes for this. He writes for that. He writes for us. Adam White, legal scholar par excellence, Joining us today, thank you for being here, Adam. Hi, John. What's new? Nothing really. I, you know, just uh, fifty years of uh, American jurisprudence uh, thrown in the blender, um, and uh, of a, a political controversy just taking a gigantic, uh, uh, not really a U-turn, but a gigantic uh, redirection. But I guess we we thought we would start with um, with the news out of Ohio that uh, after a hard-fought primary. Uh, in which I think there were six uh, contenders. Uh, J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, uh, the never-Trumper who has become the Trumpiest Trumper of all Trumpsteins, uh, prevails um, uh, with, uh, I don't know, 32% of the vote. Um, uh, what was interesting was that in the early going, it appeared that the Trumper and the, and the anti-Trumper uh, in the race um, were neck and neck, and then as the election day vote came in, uh, it was clear that uh, Donald Trump's endorsement of J.D. Vance was the secret sauce because he just charged ahead in the election day vote and ended up to 10 points uh, in the lead or nine points in the lead. And the uh, and the anti-Trumper wasn't even second. Uh, uh, Josh Mandel, uh, who was the uh, former secretary of state of Ohio, uh, and was had spent a couple of years trying to be the Trumpiest Trumpy Trump person on the planet Earth, um, came in second, actually, which means that the Trumpy vote in the Ohio primary, uh, the sort of like the we're, we're MAGA to MAGA, you know, to high MAGA level, came in around 55 to 56 percent of the of the electorate. Um, and so I think that's the most telling i mean of the republican electorate that's the most telling fact that in that in fact the candidates uh, the candidate in particular that uh, tried to you know go go up the middle as the non-trumper um really uh faded by the end or you know or, or ended up getting about 20 percent of the vote which would suggest that um the thing that we know, which is that Trumpism or Trump is Trumpishness or whatever dominates the Republican Party uh, in in the, you know, 
in what, what used to be the bellwether state of the nation is no longer is is too red. I mean, Trump won it by eight points, so it's no no longer a bellwether. But I mean that that's where where the party is. Um, Adam, I, you have some. I think you have some thoughts. I believe you have some thoughts. <laughs> um, he, you're very polite. He's from Iowa. You know, it's a very polite. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to talk trash about people. That's not Adam. Uh, well, I'll say I thought I found it interesting that right out of the gates, Tim Ryan was prepared with uh, with with ads or social media hits, um, really bashing JD's hedge fund uh, connection. Yeah, so Tim Ryan is Tim Ryan is the Democratic candidate for Senate in in Ohio. Congressman ran as the I think the rightmost presidential candidate in the field in the Democratic field in 2020, positioning himself as a centrist to to right-wing Democrat. Go ahead. Sorry. That's right. Yeah. Sort of a throwback to Bill Clinton style, new Democrats. And I thought it was interesting to see him right out of the gates, hitting JD for his hedge fund connections, his San Francisco, his move to San Francisco early in his career clips where JD joked that America in, in recent months, that America is a joke as JD put it. Um, it'll so be very interesting to watch Ryan hit JD from sort of the, the pro-America side of things. But J- what John is alluding to is, you know, having known JD loosely for a few years, I mean, needless to say, it's been fascinating to watch, um, uh, fascinating is a euphemism there, to watch his his move on Trump. I mean, in the immediate aftermath of the the uh, of Trump's election and inauguration, you know, JD was very publicly and privately working hard to sort of understand what the the the, the new political environment was and how he would run someday for office as an anti-Trump Republican. And I guess the, uh, the answer is if you can't beat him, join him. You know, I, I wanted to say that I, there's been a lot of uh, questioning on the part of the Trump skeptical right about uh, J.D. Vance's careerism and whether he means what he says here. And I am going to give him the benefit of the doubt, not not least because I know people who underwent some kind of an internal revolution over the past over the over the years between 2017 and 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 2020, and really became different uh, people emotionally. Some of it uh, because they were pleased with the results of Trump's governance, and some of it because they were so appalled by the behavior of. The Democrats and and the um, the embrace of the sort of the 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 embrace of the Democratic Party of this new base of theirs, this kind of college educated woke base, and uh, it, it makes sense to me that and Chris Caldwell's uh, very interesting piece in the New York Times this weekend, which was about what JD Vance is up to, I think. Uh, illustrate some of this that um, there's more going on here than just uh, he wanted to be a senator so he went uh, trumpish it's like his brain was taken over by a set of uh, his brain and his emotions were taken over by a set of beliefs that layered over his previous beliefs as a as a frank uh, fascinating character not unlike say my father or somebody like that a uh, scion of the uh, though he really wasn't working class i mean as as I mentioned last week, Kevin Williamson in his review of Hillbilly Elegy points out that his 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 grandparents made like $175,000 a year. Like the, they, this was not a poor hard scrabble Appalachian family, um, but his mother was laid low by drug addiction, and his grand his grandma his grandparents were a little were were as as they say in in Middletown, Ohio, Meshuga, 
And so uh, he ended up having to save himself by going into the military. And then he became a real elite a figure product of the elite. You know, he was a Yale Law School graduate. Amy Chua is the one who convinced him he should write this memoir. He wrote for David Frum's website. He wrote for us. Uh, you know, he wrote this is this best-selling book, which is a very layered and complicated portrait of this this town and this world and the sort of fentanyl addicted world that we we saw in the in the in the twenty teens. And uh, I think he basically said, "Well, the hell with all this. Like that, I, I I'm I don't like the people that I went to Yale Law School with. I don't like the world of 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 the elites. They make me sick." They're not doing anything to help the people that I come from, and I've had it. So that that would be my case that J.D. Vance means it. And when he said, I don't give a damn, or whatever it was he said about Ukraine, did he say, I don't give a damn about Ukraine, or something like that? I don't really care about what happens to Ukraine. Yeah. One way or the other. What he meant is, this country, he, it's the Flight 93 thing. Like, this country is about to be destroyed. Don't distract our attention with troubles in faraway lands of which we know little, uh, we have to focus our energies and our interests uh, here. Um, and you know that's horrifying to a lot of us, and horrifying to the uh, to anybody who believes that the United States is, you know, has is the is the greatest power in the world, and you know needs to uh, needs to help protect the world order. Uh, Vance and people like him no longer care about the world order. Uh, and they do not believe that America is a is a is a great country anymore, uh, where they where they think that it is it is um, it is be, is under assault from within in a way that's going to destroy it. And these are emergency times, and emergency measures must be taken, and everything else is a distraction. So, or everything I, else is an an elite con. Yeah, right. That, exactly. That's a better that, way to put it. Thank you. But there's also can we there's also another elephant in this room of Vance's election that people don't talk about that much. Before he had Trump's support, he had Peter Thiel's support to the tune of 15 million dollars and a super PAC that did a ton of work uh, for the Vance campaign um, in this weird situation where they like were posting things on Medium and then you know the Vance campaign could read it, but it wasn't violating election laws and all this. But Peter Thiel is a kind of elite, right? I mean, so it's a weird sort of thing where you have you have these you have an elite technocrat backing a Trump populist, and it's only at the last minute that Trump himself came in. And I would say, yes, obviously Trump Trump's endorsement mattered, but Peter Thiel's money, Tucker Carlson appearances, and Trump Jr.'s support were far more crucial to Vance uh, kind of hanging in there and 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 pulling this out than Trump's late in the game endorsement, or at least I, just as important. I'm not sure that's true, although I don't think that he would have gotten the endorsement without all the uh, with all the preceding facts that you you point out. Uh, yeah, Trump Jr., Tucker. Um, uh, but it, it's clear that everybody was bunched up uh, in that race. Like there was enough polling to suggest that, you know, there was no daylight between the top four people or something. And we're all right. like 15 percent. And he was kind of lower down on the totem pole than most during the race. Trump endorses him. 12 days ago or something like that. And then he ends up with 32%. And the guy, you know, who was actually an Ohio pol politician, well known to Ohio Republicans, comes in second with 22 or 23%. So I, I, I don't see how you can look at this and not say that the Trump endorsement here was the, you know, was the accelerant that got him into first place. The Teal thing is very interesting because Teal is also backing a couple of other candidates, primarily Blake Masters, who works for him in Arizona. And um, 
I mean, we we could do you know 25 hours on Peter Thiel. It's one of the great ironies that Peter Thiel's uh, liquidity event that made him you know a major figure that then kept on ch- ch- chugging along um, was the same liquidity event that gave birth to Elon Musk as a as a visionary figure. They both they both cashed out on PayPal. Musk got 180 million dollars. Thiel got I think twice that that much and uh, then they were both off to the races and here they are you know teal may be the kingmaker of the republican party this year and elon musk is of course elon musk that's just an interesting footnote uh noah uh, where are you on all this um so this primary wasn't the only or this race wasn't the only really important race that occurred last night um there was a special election in michigan's 74th house district um, to replace a guy who ended up moving up to the Senate. This is a Republican district. Uh, his predecessor won it by 26 points. Donald Trump won it by 16 points. But in the primary, um, to use Thomas Massey's phrasing, the craziest son of a bitch won the race. Um, gentleman by the name of R.J. Reagan. And he has expressed, he has made himself a, uh, a tribune of the claim that 2020 was a stolen election and the results need to be overturned. Vaccine conspiracy theorist um, has said that Ukraine has biological weapons they're going to use against Russia. Russia is you know, sort of justified in this. He said some very flippant things about rape and said that feminism is a Jewish conspiracy. He lost. And he lost by a lot. It's a 12-point race with 8% of the vote writing in somebody, anybody. But the Democrat won. And a lot of these conspiracy theories, albeit with slightly more sophistication, find themselves in the mouths of people like J.D. Vance. And J.D. Vance and the people like him, like Masters, who has also got his own anti-Semitic conspiracy theory going on. That's not applicable to J.D. But nevertheless, he's talked about the idea that fentanyl is a conspiracy theory designed to kill MAGA voters, that the White House has engineered the border crisis, that he doesn't care about what happens to Ukraine, even though a lot of Republicans and most Americans do. And Republicans could blow it. They can blow it in November by electing a lot of people who are whose chief appeal is that they represent a thumb in the eye of the people they don't like. Not that they're electable. In fact, being electable is kind of a detriment because it represents your bowing to the forces that be and failing to be transgressive in the right ways. And if this happens in Arizona, it happens in Ohio and happens in Pennsylvania, Republicans could really blow a lot of winnable seats. Look, Ohio is a is a rhetoric state than it used to be. It's a populist state, but they have a very blue populist U.S. senator presently representing that state in Congress, and he is very safe. There's no indication that these voters are ideologically consistent, and they can go either way, especially if their sensibilities are violated in in the ways that J.D. Vance has so recklessly entertained. Okay, I got two things to say about that. One of which is I would have gone exactly where you were going. But last night I listened to the emergency 538 podcast that they produced after the, you know, after the election results. And um, uh, Nathaniel Rakich, their lead, you know, aside from Nate Silver, their lead like elections analyst, basically said Tim Ryan doesn't have a chance. You just, he cited a very, 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 stunning statistic first of all not only did trump win by eight a republican you know the state has gone redder and redder and it's gone redder since Sherrod brown won the won the senate seat um he pointed out that in 2020 
Ohio is two-thirds counties, two-thirds rural, I believe. In 2020, Joe Biden, there are 3,309 counties in the United States. Joe Biden won 160 rural counties. In 1992, I believe, Bill Clinton won 800 or 1,000 or something like that. And the degeneration has been, the slope, downward slope has been, you know, awesome. Unless Cincinnati and, you know, Columbus and I don't know where else, like turn out at 100% uh, for Ryan, says Rakich. You're articulating that's, that's my biggest, seat. yeah, well, I have my problems with Rakich. You're articulating the biggest problem with data and now analysts who disregard campaigns as though they don't matter. Campaigns matter. Campaigns matter or else Christine O'Donnell would be a senator, Sharon Engel would be a senator, Richard Murdoch would be a senator, Todd Akin would be a senator. These people stepped on landmines because they were reckless. Okay, that, that's a very fair point. Um, of course, let's presume that J.D. Vance is, remains the author of Hillbilly Elegy and is a more supple thinker and a more strategic person than we realize. He doesn't run in the general the way he ran to win the primary. And we have a perfect example of a politician who played these cards and then played other cards. And that's Ron DeSantis, who ran the most preposterously, caricaturishly ludicrous Trumpian campaign to win the win the Republican nomination in Florida in 2018, tacked to the center and just barely squeaked out a win uh, in the in the general. And then until he became the big culture warrior of the last two years, governed as a governing conservative, as a relatively non-ideological governing conservative. That can happen. That can be done. And maybe it's too late. Maybe Vance means so means what he says. Not by the way, I do think that he means what he says, but I don't know that he's the kind of person. He's not Murdoch. He's not Aiken. He is a very sophisticated person. John. And may not. Okay. That's my. I, I, I agree with you. And I think in some sense, the MAGA message has broadened in a way that uh, could help these candidates. Um, because the attack on the elite is now so total and um, stretches across the political spectrum to such a great degree that um, if they keep to that, I think they can they can do themselves some political good. I'm not saying I support this. I'm just saying I think there's something in it. Uh, Vance said last night uh, when he won, the people who are caught between the corrupt political class of the left and the right, they need a voice. They need a representative. And that's going to be me. And and that's also a problem. It, the same problem that I yep. think Noah correctly outlines on the right is also a problem on the left. And we saw it, that in Ohio on a smaller scale because Chantel Brown defeated Nina Turner in a Democratic primary. Chantel Brown was the more sort of establishment, uh, you know, oh, 
Jim Clyburn endorsed a Democrat and Nina Turner was the progressive. She had a Bernie Sanders endorsement, she had an AOC endorsement. And in some ways they're the kind of left, their endorsements, these progressive caucus endorsements, their candidates aren't doing well for the same reason. Nina Turner's kind of bonkers. And voters looked at that, Democratic voters looked at that and said, eh, that's too fringy for us. We're going to, we're going to go with the establishment figure. So it's a danger. Those extreme challenges are, are happening on both ends. Well, that's one reason why I find Tim Ryan's first volleys so interesting, right? That he is trying to frame Vance as a product of elites and out-of-state elites. Uh, and they're both going to try to play the general Ohio public with the, with, uh, with the anti-elitist card. And we'll see which, which elite is less popular in Ohio by the end of the year. Okay, I want to I float and that connect this to, to the, you know, earthquake subject that is, you know, vastly more important than the results of this one primary. Um, I, gaming it out, Tim Ryan wants to run to the center, right? I mean, that's the key to his victory is running the center, peeling off suburbanites, getting the 2018 suburban look to look advanced the way they looked at um, the way they looked at Trump and to sort of say, I, no, 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 no can have this like i don't want this this is embarrassing or I'm, I'm i'm disgusted or whatever so the interesting wrinkle is what does the leak of the dobbs decision assuming that it remains pretty much what we end up seeing when the when the court hands down hands down the decisions what does this do in a race like that and here's what i mean by that ryan needs to move to the center the Dobbs decision, even though the whole point of this majoritarian argument is that most people in America support Roe v. Wade or support abortion rights and are against, are you know, are against banning abortions, right? Or you know, against lifting Roe v. Wade. Not not that I think that there are twenty people, more than twenty percent of this country that could even define what that means. Um. This is going to push Democrats to the left on abortion. I know that sounds weird because you, you couldn't really be further to the left than supporting partial birth abortion. But in other words, they're going to want abortion to be at the center of the conversation from now until November. We talked about this yesterday. I don't think that's good for Ryan, although he'll be tempted it for two reasons. One is money, because Money is going to rain down on Democratic candidates in the way that it rained down in 2018 because of the abortion decision. We already heard that Narrow or something like that got 20 or 30 or 40 million dollars in one day after Kamala the- Harris spoke at an Emily's List fundraiser just last night. Yeah, <laughs> raised a okay. lot of money. So there's going to be a lot of money in it to go reproductive rights or to, uh, whatever is they whatever euphemism they want to use, which is fine except that it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough, in my view, for that Democratic base or for the real hard base to just say, I, I, I oppose this and you know, reproductive rights need to be defended. Tim Ryan has to say that he's uncomfortable with abortion. He has to say that this is a very painful issue. In fact, I looked on his website and that's the rhetoric that he's used during his time as a congressman. I've sat with women. I know this is a very difficult and painful issue. It's such a difficult and painful issue. I don't know that anybody's going to want, people on the left are going to want to hear that. So this decision, while it may be gold for many people, my, here's my speculation is, and this may go against Noah's, Noah's view in some sense, 
that uh, this is a potential poison pill for Tim Ryan, who needs to run a perfect campaign, thread a needle in a state that was that was uh, Trump plus eight, and sort of like get people disaffected with with Vance and like him, and will turn out uh, all all three. And if he has to if he has to reckon with this central obsession for for six months, I don't think that's going to be good for him. Noah, where where do you? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> this Ohio is a theory. Is I have no idea. Yeah, Ohio no is idea. obviously. I don't. I don't think you're wrong that Democrats obviously today want to transform 2022 into a, a referendum on abortion. I don't know if Ohio is the proper terrain for that sort of fight. Probably isn't, and I certainly think that every candidate is going to run their own race. Um, and I don't know how this shakes out over the next couple of weeks. Democrats may font might find that there's very little traction on this. Uh, particular issue because Republicans aren't playing ball. Republicans don't want to talk about Roe, um, which, you know, probably to the consternation of the conservative activist class, they're not doing that because all the issues that that resonate with voters today favor the GOP and Roe doesn't. Overturning of Roe does not. It's not popular. It's the right thing to do legally, morally. It's not popular. So, yeah, they're running away from it. So Republicans aren't going to give them any runway there. And Democrats are just going to say the same thing to the tune of no pushback. And at a certain point, you're going to have to find a different issue set. And the issue set for, for Tim Ryan that makes the most sense, easiest way to play it, is to position himself as sort of this populist, centrist, Sherrod Brown type, while making the race a referendum on his opponent. His opponent is not who he claims to be. We don't know who he claims to be. This former resident of downtown San Francisco, an elite lawyer, and a national best-selling author with an Ivy League education is not the populist MAGA hero that he presented himself to be. And it's pretty easy to, at every, almost every turn, to turn the issue set against this guy who claims to mirror your values, but doesn't live them. I don't know. I don't know. Trump, Trump, Trump's a rich guy from New York. I mean... He invented it, and he's the he's the object lesson in somebody who doesn't live the life of a, you know, of a of a Ohio rural Ohioan. It's so, quite I mean, possible maybe that, that maybe JD that's Vance maybe that mirror exactly the trajectory that the most famous man in America for thirty years pioneered. I don't right. know if I put all my chips in on it. I just I always find that the he's not a real he's not a real Ohioan. You know, Hillary's not a real New Yorker. They're someone is a carpetbagger. This is a very tempting thing to run on. Look, ultimately, First the, of all, the environment is, is going to carry him he over. He grew up in Ohio. He left Ohio when he was 18 to go into the military. I just don't think that that dog hunts. I'm sorry. He was he he grew up in Middletown, Ohio. He went off into the military and then he went to college and law school. And then he got it. Then he went to San Francisco for a little bit. He wrote a book. He moved back to Ohio. In 2018, he's 34 years old. Like, it's really not, he's not like somebody going to Ohio when he's 55. I, I mean, I, I understand why that's a temptation to Ryan, but running the, I'm, a, I'm the more authentic Ohioan, who cares who's the more authentic Ohioan? Really? I mean, where, where is the authentic person of a state ever a determinative factor? And what's more, phoniness I don't know that phoniness is, is, can someone show me 
can you think of, I don't mean, cause I'm not like we're doing this, you know, off the top of our heads, but when is a, he's a phony ever actually beat somebody in a head to head binary choice, binary race. He's saying what he doesn't believe, but like, if you believe what he says, he believes you're not going to have a problem with that. If the other guy believes an entirely different, has an entirely different belief set. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I mean, there's, this through logic. Yeah, it's very hypothetical and it sort of doesn't really matter because the national environment's probably going to carry him over uh, whether he's inauthentic or not, which he's very inauthentic. But the first name that comes to mind is somebody who is perhaps done in, although there are so many other contributing factors that you can't even say, but who is perhaps done in by his rank inauthenticity is John Kerry. I was just thinking of it. Windsurfing carry. Yes. Fair enough. Talk, talking to okay. working class Democratic voters. <laughs> well, and also, also, you know, war hero Kerry, who made his political career as an anti-war activist. Like I'm, you know, Sergeant Kerry reporting for duty or whatever the hell it was he said at the beginning of his speech. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, man, that's really interesting that this is the game you're playing. I mean, to say nothing of Hillary Rodham Clinton, who never said an honest thing in her life. Right. And I think, national. by the way, okay, okay. but I think there's two fair examples. Enough. Fair enough. Okay. Except I think those two examples serve in in to show in in how different, say, uh, John Kerry, especially John Kerry and Hillary Clinton, are from J.D. Vance. Um, he's in relative good shape compared to them, in terms of. Um, well, he's on the phony He's scale. smarter. He's smarter than all of them. Which is but why it's, it's so which that. is why it's, it's so egregious that. because he knows exactly what he's doing. But he may Vance, not be phony. Okay, but Adam, so JD Vance, if JD Vance, JD Vance is the object, is the candidate that represents um who represents an entire body of opinion in the Republican Party that remember Trump never got more than 45% of the vote in the Republican primaries in 2016. And yet by 2019, 90% of Republicans had a favorable opinion of him. He, if you take him as a never Trumper who then moves to being a Trumper, that is not out of the ordinary in the Republican party. Uh, we would like it to be, we would like it. We would like to say, how can you trust this guy? Look at what he did. Look at what he said in, in you know, November or December of 2016. Well, if A, it's okay with Trump because Trump endorsed him. And B, we didn't know 15 or 20 people whom, whom a lot of us feel like they got taken over by the pod people. And I don't mean my family. I mean the invasion of the body snatchers pod people and became somebody else and thought something else that seemed to be a complete betrayal of everything that they had fought before. I'm talking about you, Chris Demuth. What What is that? I mean, so that's a real thing. Like, that's a real thing. And so he is kind of like the electoral representative of that real thing. Yeah, I think where he stood on Trump is a lot less important than where he stood on, on Ohio, including middle class and lower middle class Ohio. Um, you know, his book, as you mentioned earlier with Williamson's uh, review, his book was really a criticism of a lot of Ohio. Um and now he's sort of returned as, as their champion. I mean, to get back to the abortion question, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, obviously, Tim Ryan might be pulled to the left by the progressive base. But to the extent that he focuses on the Supreme Court 
not explicitly preserving a right to abortion when the life or health of the mother's in, in, in danger. And to the extent to which the, the, the decision is sort of characterized as you can get an abortion if you can afford to fly to California, it'll be interesting to see how that issue plays out with the sort of lower middle class and poor Ohioans, not just sort of suburban women, but the, the, the poorer women in Ohio who might be really troubled by, by, by the way that that decision is framed. Um, and that's, that's, I think, where you'll see Ryan and Vance play out. I'm very curious to see where J.D. comes down on this opinion, um, you know, while trying to maintain his defense of poor Ohioans. Right. I mean, look, the obvious thing for him to do, the obvious electoral strategy for, for Vance is to tack to the center somewhat. He wants the enthusiastic Republican 2022 turnout, which may come regardless, right, because that's the national atmosphere. But I mean, the, the, the standard thing you would do is you got the nomination. Now reach out to others to, you know, not only win, but maybe, you know, win, win resoundingly. Um, but of course, there are counter pressures against that. And there will also be counter pressures with Trump throughout. This is part of, I think, Noah's like. Trump may demand his scalp and the scalp could be, you know, you got to say that 2020 was stolen. You know, particularly when the January 6th stuff starts happening, I guess, next month, what, they're going to start issuing the report or have hearings or I don't even know what. Again, I think this is Noah's point that is very important and it just introduces notes of wild uncertainty into this entire election season. There are going to be very high profile things happening, not just Roe, that are going to push are going to push Republican candidates who, if they could just keep their mouths shut and not actually say anything until November, they would win overwhelming numbers of seats in the House and possibly significant, like end up not only at 50, you know, like end up with a significant majority in the Senate. But no one's going to be allowed to stay silent. There's too much going on. You know, and so and so that is that is the that is the X factor. And the X factor, if it's bothering you, you know what you do when you have to think about an X factor, you get in your X chair. X factor to the X chair. You want to know about the X chair? It'll warm you up when you're cold. It'll cool you down when you're warm with that pat with that LMAX temperature regulation that is unique to the X chair and with that patented dynamic variable lumbar, which supports your lower back. You're never you've never felt this way in this luxury supercar of office chairs. It is everything that I've been telling you it is. Uh, it's a winner. It's got a 30-day guarantee. If you don't like it, you can send it back. But you are not going to want to send it back. You're not. Because it is so comfortable. It is so comfortable that you, you know, you'll, you'll plots. You'll plots. If you don't plots, you're going you're gonna to just be the happiest uh, person uh, on earth in your X chair. And uh, risk-free for 30 days, go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair. Commentary.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a thir that 30 guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Xchaircommentary.com. Okay, Adam. Uh, let uh, let us avail let it, we want to avail ourselves of your deep understanding not only of legal precedent and all of that but of the 
machinations and workings of the Supreme Court. Here we are, day two. Um, there is this theory abroad. We 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 talked about it. Matt Conde talked about it yesterday. Uh, that in fact this uh, decision was leaked by a conservative, not by a liberal, uh, in an effort to make sure that uh, Kavanaugh didn't go wobbly. I find this extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult to believe. But and you know, as a kind of it's it, it's never that interesting. Never happens that it's that interesting that you know something ends up like a really interesting like a plot on the West Wing. That's not the way life happens. Um, but where, where do you stand on this and what's your, what's your, what's your bet? Sure. Well, first of all, in honor of star Wars day, May the fourth day, I'm, I'm going to refer to the draft opinion as a new hope. Um, <laughs> and in terms of the, in terms of the leak theory, I mean, I'm with you. I tend to go with the, the simplest explanation, which is that this came from a liberal clerk, perhaps a clerk of justice Sotomayor, who was at oral argument in this case, complaining that the decision in this direction would would just be rank political activism by the court itself and would delegitimize the court. Um, but also, I've lived in Washington long enough to be sort of attracted to the sheer incompetence theory of the leak. And that would be something like um, liberal law clerk left uh, the draft, uh, left a printout of the draft somewhere in their apartment and, uh, and, and you know, political activist roommate got it and leaked it to Gersten, Gerstein. Um, I, that seems as, as totally plausible to me as just about anything else other than the Occam's wow, razor that, one. Okay, everybody, let's give Adam a hand. He has actually now created an entirely new theory here on the Commentary Podcast. No one has floated the, somebody just left the draft lying around and handed it to somebody else. That is fantastic. And yes, I think we need, that needs to be, you know, in the list of possibilities in the New York Times quiz, you know, what, how did, what, what, what might've happened? I don't know. That's, that's, or some version of that. Okay. That being said, um, I've had like 36 hours to think about this and yes, it's terrible that a, a, you know, confidential Supreme court opinion is leaked. What, what is the world coming to and all of that? And on the other hand, eh, screw it. Like, so what? Like that, that, that's a, that's a, uh, I, I know we're all institutionalists and all that. Uh, it's kind of a distraction as a subject. The subject is the decision. The subject okay, is. Okay, but here's, the, here's the, the thing yeah. though. This obviously, there's some internet brain worms that have overtaken the left over the course of 24 hours because Republicans smartly, candidates smartly and office holders are not focusing necessarily on the decision, which isn't the decision yet. So they don't want to, you know, jump the jump the gun and make this obviously the subject of conversation. They're talking about the leak, which is very serious. At best, it was an effort to influence proceedings by fomenting a, re a revolt, a popular revolt. At worst, it was an effort to undermine the institution itself, which is even worse because it comes from within the institution. It's a very big deal. But the notion here that this leak and talking about the leak somehow overshadows the overturning of Roe v. Wade is crazy talk. It's the sort of nonsense that you can only say on the internet without people institutionalizing you. Uh, okay, can you can you uh, can you elaborate on this? Because I'm not yes, quite sure where Roe v. Wade is being overturned. Yes, that's After right. After 50 that's what years, I'm saying. that's right. a big story. At no yes. point is focusing, even for the the few moments we have to focus on it, on this very egregious violation of institutional norms, is in, in no universe could that possibly overshadow this decision 
And yet that was the assumption and, and articulated on the part of lawmakers and, and progressives in the press yesterday because Republicans dared make mention of the leak, which is itself a very big deal. The idea that it would eclipse the overturning of Roe is the sort of thing you can only say on the internet without people looking at you like you're unstable and under yeah, no, no, are you are you saying that so they're, they're this argument is being made to turn it into a Republicans pounce story? Democrats are saying that Republicans are focusing exclusively on right. the leak right now in order to avoid okay. Roe because they don't want to they don't want to talk about that, even though this is a 50 year victory on their parts. It's obvious that, you know, by not focusing on it, they're de they're demonstrating, you know, how 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 bad it is for them. And there's some truth to that position, but it's also insane because you can't eclipse the overturning of Roe if you wanted to. And wrote that ha and I so I'm with Noah on this, John. I actually think the leak is still remains a very serious part of this because it ha when it's seen in the context of how the left in particular and the Democratic Party has been talking about the court lately. And I mean, like in the last, you know, five to 10 years, the idea that there has been a steady effort to undermine the legitimacy of the court from the progressive left in particular, not just about court packing, but but this idea that I mean, somebody uh, posted these, you know, these these chalk uh, sayings that Yale Law School students put yeah. all over the campus. Yesterday. It's things like we are the law. The law yeah. is violence, like just insanity. But that is it, it's very indicative of an approach to the court and its decision making that is similar to what has happened to our criminal justice system, which is to say, if we don't like a result or if we don't like what's happening when when the law is enforced, then we don't believe in the law. And that is really pernicious. And the fact that if this turns out to be someone from inside the building who did this, that's a very serious thing. Um, that said, I, I, I'm with Noah. I think that the politically savvy Republicans aren't talking about this yet because it hasn't happened. If it happens, then they can then we can have a discussion about it. And I think the left is trying to force this because they still see it incorrectly, in my opinion, as a good issue for them in the midterms. But the midterms are still a long way off. Adam. Um. So you're talking about politicians. So let's talk about the let's talk about the intellectual class on the right. Um, I listened to a lot of podcasts yesterday, so I listened to the National Review podcast, and Phil Klein and Zan DeSantis and Maddie Kearns and Rich all said it. This was like they died and gone to heaven. This opinion was every single thing that they could possibly have wanted it to be and more. It was like a dream come true. It was what people have wanted a judge or a justice to say about Roe for 50 years. And as I said yesterday, Federalist Society started, you know, in a building next door to my dorm at the University of Chicago in 1979, based largely on the growing sense that the uh, Warren and then the Burger courts were basically antinomian that they were just making decisions on the with, with that were anchored in nothing and Roe was the ultimate anchored in nothing decision and that a, an intellectual superstructure needed to be built to support a return to anchoring ideas in the constitution that was a relatively radical position i want to cite commentary here to say that the one of the earliest expostulators of the you know Supreme Court decisions are supposed to be about the constitutionality of things and need to be need to be anchored in them was a Yale Law School professor named Alexander Bickle, who wrote for commentary and was a liberal, but was we didn't even have terms like originalist then, but was a 
somebody who said, well, you can't just say that things are good and then say that they're, they should exist. Like that's not how the American system and the American constitution works. And that was, that was, a, that was, again, he was a Democrat, he was a liberal. And, and so this entire structure came out that created the intellectual conditions that made possible 40 some odd years later for Samuel Alito to write the draft decision that we read yesterday. Uh, what does that say to you about the intellectual? The, because Noah's saying Republicans are going to run away from this. The Republican no, no, no. elite no, no, no. is not. Okay. I, they are not going to run away from this, okay. even if they wanted to, They, okay. which they shouldn't. Well, not run away. They won't they're, be able they're, to. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> they're keeping their powder dry for when the battle's upon them. Okay, okay. Adam, give me, give me your, give me your, uh, you were speaking at the Federalist Society yesterday morning. Yeah. So what was the mood like in the room? Well, it was a, it was a conference on the administrative state and, uh, to my amazement, the, the morning sessions remained focused on the administrative state. Um, but, but let me just say, John, your mention of Bickle, that's kind of full circle in a couple of ways. And not just because I think the first piece I ever wrote for commentary was a, was trying to resurrect the legacy of Bickle. Um, but also, Bickle is who inspired Justice Alito to, to, to go to law school, uh, as, as Alito ah. explained. Yeah. Um, so about this draft opinion, I'd say reading it, I was struck by the fact that it really was the culmination of 40 years of originalism, 50, or, uh, in 50 years, if you count sort of the proto-originalist years, the prequels, um, in that it wasn't just the focus on Roe and cr- all the criticism of Roe. But you have in this draft opinion, just step by step, almost the platonic ideal of, a, of an originalist constitutional analysis, starting with the text um, and the lack of textual support for Roe, then moving on to, to tradition and the idea that, sure, we can, have a, we can have constitutional rights that aren't spelled out explicitly in the Constitution, but they need to be rooted in actual American tradition. Uh, then moving on to precedent uh, and, and so on. This really was the, 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 again, the platonic ideal of an originalist opinion. But maybe my favorite part about the opinion is the first six pages. Um, it's clear that Alito, in drafting this opinion, recognizes that this will be the most read Supreme Court opinion um, since Brown v. Board of Education, perhaps. Um, but of course, it'll only be read for about the first 10 pages. Um, so in these first six pages, he spells out the summary of the decision. And amazingly, he boils down the 60, 60 pages of analysis into six pages of really pithy, it almost reads like a commentary essay. In fact, you know, he even takes even more so than in the later pages of the draft, he takes long citations and he moves them down into footnotes so that this can be read and perhaps quoted um, in, in very, very clear ways. So he's speaking at two levels. He has the long opinion for the court's normal audiences, but he has these six pages, five pages for the American public. And I was really, really struck by that. And yeah, it's a little, ad, I mean, if you want to get nitpicky here, it's a little adverb heavy, heavy at times. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the more colorful prose in the draft get whittled away by the time the final decision is written. But the, I was just struck by what he, he tries to do in those first five pages. Uh, it's interesting to note that I believe that Supreme Court tradition and precedent would have assigned this uh, opinion to Thomas as the senior most person in the majority. 
Yeah. Um, and Thomas then would have had to be the one to say, no, Sam, you write it. Yeah. Which is a very interesting thing, because of course, this is the capstone opinion of our time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, 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 and and that Thomas himself may be thinking, I'm too divi- I, who knows what he thought? I'm too divisive a figure. Or even, you know what? I'm not even sure I can write this the way that it should be written because I'm probably kind of closer to the idea of fetal rights and I, that shouldn't, and I don't want to have to not re- reflect that, you know, I, I don't want to trim my sails and just go with the more narrow argument. I mean, I, I'm now literally like reading someone's brain here. So that's, that's a wrong way to go, but it is a, it is a, it is a, as a footnote, it's a sort of striking footnote in its own that Thomas did not, Thomas chose, I, I believe. Well, I want to ask, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm interrupting, but I want to ask no, Adam a question because I have a, a sort of a theory that I'm manifestly unqualified to have. Uh, and perhaps you could <laughs> oh, actually Oh, well, that's every out. day on the podcast for all <laughs> Fair of enough. Us. But at least I recognize in this case yeah. my, my incapacities. Um, so Democrats, too, are sort of expanding the terms of engagement here. It's not just they're like, ah, why, why don't Republicans focus on Roe? They're not focusing on Roe. They're focusing on all these other rights that emanate from the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. You know, Republicans are coming after loving. They're coming after interracial marriage, according to, I think it was Eric Swalwell, who's a lunatic, but nevertheless. Um, you know, half a dozen other rights that that emanate from the 14th Amendment. And it's my theory that because Roe was so tortured and found rights to privacy in the entire Bill of Rights to say nothing of the 14th Amendment, that it's overturning, in their view, opens up all these other fronts when it doesn't, Alito says it doesn't, but you don't even have to believe him. It doesn't simply because of the fact that Roe was so so torturously decided that it, it, it suggests this entire landscape of American rights are now open season on you know, free you know, targets when they're not and never were. So Adam, yeah, I, thought, you? I thought that the opinion did a good job of uh, basically trying to point out the obvious, which is everybody recognizes Roe is different. Everybody recognizes that this has been the central issue of the last 50 years of constitutional debate. And as you pointed out on the podcast yesterday, political debate, precisely because it's so different than everything else. And so Alito could say, um, this is different because there's another human life at stake. And that's a pretty simple way to sort of draw a bright line. Um, I mean, it is true. The court's mode of analysis here does raise questions about uh, Griswold, the, the right to contraception. Um, it raises questions about the court's approach in Obergefell and other cases. I, I have serious doubts that those decisions will ever be overturned for a variety of reasons, both good and bad. Um, but I think it was not hard for the court to distinguish that away. I thought Alito did a good job. And John, one of the reason why I thought it was interesting that Alito got the pen for the first draft on this um, his most famous opinion as a lower court judge was his own opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That case, since it came out of Pennsylvania, came through his federal court of appeals, and he wrote a separate opinion, very, very strongly sort of casting doubt on, on, on Roe v. Wade. And it was his most famous and controversial opinion. It's surely what rocketed him into the stratosphere of the conservative legal movement in the early 90s ended up positioning himself for a Supreme Court opinion. And so it's sort of fitting that he would be the one to draft the eventual decision in, in the case that puts an end to it. Look, you know, uh, we made some fun yesterday on the podcast, uh, uh, Matt did with the, um, with the notorious uh, Anthony Kennedy mystery of life 
oh sweet mystery of life paragraphs in uh, in 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 Casey Planned Parenthood v Casey. But um, there is an important thing to say, which is why this is about Roe and this is about Roe alone. So pregnancy uh, is uh, the singular uh, moment of existence on of, of all animals on Earth everywhere, right? Not all, because not not mammals, let's say. Because it is the only time the two living creatures inhabit the same body. Or three for some of us. Or three or four, <laughs> yeah, or eight, <laughs> if you're the octomom or whatever. Okay. Well, three in your case, yes. Um, um, and so uh, analogizing this question of the rights of the mother or the rights of the unborn or the rights or is impossible. It is an impossible job, which is why it has to be a legislative solution. I mean, because hard cases make bad law. Who said that? Was it Oliver Wendell Holmes who said hard cases make bad law? Yeah. This is the hardest case in all of human existence. We cannot fathom its meaning. We don't know how it happens. We don't know anything about when consciousness begins, when the soul, if you believe in ensoulment, when the soul is in few, we know nothing except that this is how life is created on earth. And so the idea that you would then say, well, you know, your right to gay marriage, you know, in, in, there is no question that the that the that the that Roe puts the life of the mother or the rights of the doctor above whatever rights this unborn creature may have. And in no other, you know, and that that can only be in this case. It's not analogous. Maybe the over interpretation or the overuse of the equal protection clause or something like that, or the wrongful use of the equal protection clause said, would say that Obergefell shouldn't, you know, should be overturned, but it's got nothing to do with Roe, which is about this just impossible question of the competing rights within, within, within a body. And when a woman says, I have the right to do what I want to do with my body. Of course, we all immediately say, yes, you, you, you do. But wait, ah, but wait a minute. There's something else in there with a heartbeat. I see. I, I, I don't know. That phrase isn't sufficient unto the day. Like it only takes two minutes in a dorm room to start making everybody uncomfortable with the kind of caricaturish pro-choice view. And so it can't be analogous to anything else because it is analogous to nothing else. This, this is the reason why it's also this draft is really is the quintessential Alito opinion. Um, years ago, I, I wrote a piece for the Standard about Alito. Um, I, probably the only phrase I've ever coined, I called him the Berkey injustice. But that's another way of calling him the, the court's uh, BS detector. And oftentimes his role on the court has been to call BS on uh, people trying to over theorize an issue trying to oversimplify an issue by saying, well, this is just like that, right? When he was, he was disagreeing with Justice Scalia over free speech and Scalia would say, these violent video games that California wants to outlaw, they're just like 
Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel was pretty violent uh, hundreds of years ago. And Alito said, no, of course these things are different. Uh, and that's what you're describing here, where he says it doesn't take a whole lot of explanation to understand why abortion is different. And in fact, it takes a lot of theory to sort of get you to the point where you say abortion is like everything else. And so ironically, even though the Federal Society was a was a sort of a, a, a organization dedicated to a theory of constitutional government um, and and uh, Obviously, originalism is a theory of constitutional law. Um, at the end of the day, the criticism of Roe has always been an anti-theoretical one. It's been blasting away at, at the, the Kennedys and others who try to abstract this away from both the Constitution's text, but also just the basic lived reality of human life. And this is so important because this is how this plays out in the politics all the time. There was a big uh, sort of collective shock that, that yesterday Joe Biden used the word child. To when he was talking about abortion, he has not done that as president. He most Democrats don't use the word child when they discuss abortion. They use all kinds of euphemisms and all kinds of phrases that, that avoid that. And that's why I think it's such an important point about you know the, the sort of torturous logic to get to this being about privacy, which Kamala Harris last night said, yes, it's about privacy. They're going to tell you what to do all the time. They're going to invade your privacy. Most people understand that's not the case. But that hyperbole, I think, for voters who aren't plugged into the details of legal theory will resonate with some people because they'll start to say, oh, it's a slippery slope, which is usually a conservative argument. So it's kind of ironic. But that this I don't think, John, that it's that we don't know what what uh, the the miracle of of, of pregnancy and, and childbirth is. It's that we now have so many competing ways of knowing and each faction wants to argue its own way of like, I know insolment happens at conception. Well, I know it happens with a heartbeat. Well, I know it doesn't happen until the child goes to college. Like people are really do debate this and think each one has a moral grounding in what they're saying. And that's what the abortion debate has always right. been about and what the legal theories have tried to avoid in a strange way. Well, you know, if we, if we want to talk about slogans, I said that the that the single most powerful slogan of the pro-choice cause is a woman has a right to do, you know, woman, a woman has, uh, you know, has a right to do with her body as she chooses. And the great pro-life phrase is abortion stops a beating heart. Now, it's interesting, of course, is that we only know that abortion stops a beating heart because we, we can hear the heartbeat now at five or six weeks or something like that. Jewish law, uh, interestingly, uh, affords no uh, viability, affords no sense that a fetus is alive until it is 40 days. Uh, according to the Talmud, until, it, until, until a pregnancy is 40 days along, a fetus is to be considered like water. What's interesting about that, 40 days is like five weeks. It, it eerily parallels when we hear the heartbeat. So the life begins a conception problem. There is a problem with the life begins a conception theory or, 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 or belief. It's not a problem, but it is ultimately a faith-based belief. Um, and it has to do with insolment. And, and therefore, um, you know, it is a problematic source for secular law because we live in a more heterogeneous society and not everybody, not everybody believes in this concept of insolment. But when you say abortion stops a beating heart, that is something that everybody can grasp. And then you say, well, okay, it's a heart. So there's something beating there and it's a heart, but it's a clump of cells. Really? A clump of cells differentiates itself, you know, enough that it 
there's now a heart as well as a brainstem, as well as, you know, the beginning of, you know, the development of organs, like that's a clump of cells. That's one hell of a clump of cells, you know? And so, and so, but it's not that a woman has a right to do with her own body, what she chooses, isn't an incredibly powerful argument. Caitlin Flanagan had a brilliant piece in the Atlantic in 2019, in which she said, everybody in this debate needs to listen to everybody else in this debate because everybody's arguments are good. That's the crisis here, which is why the only proper way to solve this is legislatively. Now, it's not proper if you believe that life begins at conception, because if you believe that, that, that if you believe that a, a fetus is a person and has the, has personhood rights, then it doesn't matter what the majority says or doesn't say. That's like the ultimate slavery argument, right? It doesn't matter whether you want slaves or you don't want slaves. You can't have slaves because they're individual people and another person doesn't have the right to own another person or kill another person or do whatever, right? That's, 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 that's that argument. And so that denies any majority role. But in this case, because portion is so fiendishly complicated, it cannot be adjudicated by a panel of people. No panel of people is going to have sufficient standing, and we've seen this now over 50 years, is going to have sufficient standing to answer the objections. And in fact, Roe doesn't answer any objections. Um, it's an uncommonly bad piece of writing and thinking uh, that basically argued back from its prior, or argued back from, it, it was a decision was made, and then some version of crapola arguments had to be assembled to, to support, uh, to create an infrastructure to support it. And, and as we said yesterday, and as we're now reading about, you know, the ferment at the state level was crazy in the 60s and 70s about this. I mean, it was all over the place. And states that uh, conscious of uh, approaching possible efforts to restrict abortions have now written abortion into the state constitution and stuff like that. And this will be a very live thing once, if this decision comes down. And it is funny to hear all these liberals talk about the threat to democracy and the horrors of Trump's illegitimate and what about democracy and all of this, terrified of abortion becoming an issue that can that is actually subject subject to the views of the electorate. I mean, that is really I mean, they don't trust the electorate. They've made that very clear right. in, in recent history. Right. Abe, Abe, you've been uh, You've been very quiet, and I feel that I've I've been suppressing you. And not at all. Um, <clears throat> I'll just say generally about that when we're talking about the complexities of of the the question itself of, of when this is a life and when it is when when insolment happens. So, if you are not someone who is somewhere along that broad spectrum of discomfort and confusion about the subtleties and the questions. If you are at one end whereby you think, well, it's just a clump of cells and it's my body. Um, then for you, this is the easiest, most demanding, automatic, serious cause in the world, right? This is, this is, they're simply telling me what I can do with my, what I can't do with my body. And if you are on the other end and you are and, and, and there are people on both ends uh, and you say, well, of course, this is a this is another human life. My God, it's there's no question. And 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 they're being extinguished at this 
horrifying rate, then then it demands, of course, all your attention and and all all your vigor in the fight against it as well. And so those the 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 two extremes complicate the 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 sort of confusion that that the rest of the country has in the middle. Can I mention one other thing? Because it's interesting in terms of all of these conversations we've been having about domestic terrorism and threats of domestic terrorists and all of this. Something interesting happened in this country in the early 90s that is suggestive of why it is good that this will be returned to the legislature. So in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a wave of what could be considered domestic terrorist acts against abortion providers, right? A couple of doctors were, were shot and killed, abortion clinics were bombed, and all of that. When Casey came down, the pro-life movement, and, and basically uh, the hope of the pro-life movement had been that Roe would be overturned, you know, 19 years after Roe was, you know, okay. The pro-life movement had to shift gears because Roe wasn't going to be overturned. But Casey had opened the door to, res- to new kinds of restrictions. And Doug Johnson of the National Right to Life Committee and others started to assemble a strategy to start chipping away at unlimited abortion rights, parental notification laws, uh, end of partial birth abortion rights, this, that, and the other thing. And what it did was, one of the things that happened was that the domestic anti-abortion terrorism ended. It, It flat out ended because there was a possibility in the in the I, I don't mean that these domestic terrorists like are, are you know operating on the basis of you know rationality. I'm sure they were all psychopaths and evil and all that. But there was suddenly now uh, an activist legislative remedy, state by state by state by state, actual things to be done, cause things you could attach yourself to that weren't. We're just going to sit here and wait for the Supreme Court finally to take up a case and hear it and magically end this thing that we don't like. That wasn't going to happen. But then a hundred flowers or a thousand flowers bloomed in terms of what could be done to make this a more considered procedure, to make people think twice about doing it, to what, however you want to slice it. And it had a very positive effect in that sense because it engaged pro-life activists in the political process. Now, pro-choice people don't like that pro-life activists are engaged in the political process, but everybody should be engaged in the political process on matters that they want because we are a representative democracy. You know, we're, we're a republic and we're a representative democracy and we want people <laughs> I to... Think, go ahead. I think you might be underestimating what, I, what might be, in my view, one of the central cultural features that the cultural shifts that reduced produced a... a less abortion in this country. Abortion rates are down. And that is technology. Uh, the point of viability, which was central to Roe, is a moving target now as a result of technological advances. <clears throat> and so you can't, you can't have that kind of, a, it, wasn't, it wasn't a fixed point. It was never going to be a fixed point. And the extent to which you now see uh, via ultrasound technology and what have you, uh, a fetus as a living thing because it's available to you um, whereas it wasn't in 1973, uh, that has had a measurable cultural effect. Yeah, the viability uh, it, debate yeah. will only get more complicated as uh, as we move that the 
date further and further back technologies. Right. I mean, there are people working on artificial womb technology and have been for decades, and they yeah. are improving that technology year by year. Look, in 1997 or 1998, when I was the op-ed, when I was running the editorial page of the New York Post, I published a piece by my very dear friend, Meredith Berkman, who later was on the commentary magazine board. Um, and uh, liberal New York woman, uh, you know, totally unambiguously pro-choice in every possible way. And the piece was called, And Then I Heard the Heartbeat. I mentioned this because nothing special now, but this was a, 20, oh, a quarter century ago. And it was, she had her first, she was having her first child. She was on the table. They came with the ultrasound to check out, you know, how the, how, how the fetus was. And she heard the heartbeat eight weeks. And she was like, that's a baby. And that in one second changed everything for her. It was this personal experience. A lot of politics is very theoretical. This was very practical. She sat, she did doctor brought this thing and she heard this heartbeat I, I you know uh, uh four of the five of us here have children i think we've all been through this it is an astonishing moment in human existence to hear your baby's heartbeat and uh and the idea is uh don't if you don't do anything and god doesn't do anything or nature doesn't do anything in another 30 to 32 weeks that heartbeat is going to come out of a full-grown baby that is going to be alive and on the planet Earth, God willing, for most of another century, and um, that's what the pro that that is where the viability argument, the everything else, that's where the rubber meets the road here, and where the emotions on 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 abortion, the hu human emotions are not so easily. Said. Now, maybe some people hear the heartbeat and they're like, oh, my God, there's really a baby there. I can't have a baby. I can't. I can't. I can't do it now for whatever reason. I can't, you know, but that doesn't seem to be the overwhelming experience. The overwhelming experience is something mysterious in the act of creation. I've, I've just helped create something here and it, and it is transcendent and it is awe-inspiring and awesome and you know i've just something very big is happening here in me or in my wife or in whatever and so yeah i mean that's that's where that's where the moving target as as you say uh christine and as noah says like this is a very uh this is not a settled question how people are going to think about this procedure 50 years from now, as we know more and more and more and more and more. Um, uh, that's a very, very, you know, it's a very big thing. And of course, you know, the famous story is that uh, there was an abortionist named Dr. Nathanson who was performing abortions. And then he was sort of see Bernard Nathanson. And then he was seized with an understanding, some kind of understanding uh, that he was, killing something and he became he was the most successful i would say he was the most successful po populist figure in the world of of you know pro-life uh, pro-life causes burn in the first uh, 20 years of and it was because he said i i was doing this and then and then i heard the heartbeat and it wasn't just that i heard the heartbeat it's that i was stopping the heartbeat and i shouldn't do that and nobody should be able to do that I don't know. That's a very, I, you know, again, like when you get to the, when you get to the, yeah, people say 70% say they support Roe, 
or whatever. 65% say they support Roe, but do they really? I, I mean, is it all, pre- is it, is it, is it support or is it they don't want to be mad at people who've had abortions because they know people who've had abortions? Is it that they themselves had an abortion and they don't want to be thought, they don't want to think of themselves as a murderer? I don't, I mean, there's no way of getting to the bottom of that. But I don't know that if you really dig deep that the that the woman has a right to her own body is really, really, really uh, isn't superseded in the souls of many people or in the minds of, or the hearts of many people by by the heartbeat or whatever uh, you want. I have, I have a weird thought about why people support Roe that just occurred to me. Let's see if I could try to explain it. Maybe it's because um, for as as long as Roe was standing it meant that should you get into the the situation uh where you you and your partner whomever had to make this decision whatever else your misgivings were about it whatever however awful you might feel about it or least you had the you were sort of boosted by the sense that you are not on the wrong side of the law so perhaps it couldn't be that bad if you were to do it um, I'm struck by this one thing, which is, of course, 10 years ago or something, there was this whole move to walk around saying, I'm proud I had an abortion, right? People bought t-shirts. They said, I'm, pr- I'm proud of my abortion. Um, there's a singer uh, named Phoebe Bridgers, uh, uh, someone that my, my kids love, sort of alt emo rock pop singer. Um, I put out a tweet last night saying, I got pregnant on my tour last year and I went to Planned Parenthood and they gave me the abortion pill. And boy, am I glad that, you know, everybody should have this access. So on the one hand, you say, okay, well, Phoebe Bridgers, a lot of people like Phoebe Bridgers, this is going to be a good thing. But then parse it for two seconds. Like she's on tour. Boy, this is an inconvenience. I'm on tour, you know, I'm on tour and I got to do something. I got to, you know, I got other things I want to do. So I call Planned Parenthood, they give me a pill, and then I can go on, I can continue to go on tour. I don't think that this is a good message. The message that abortion is a painful necessity or like a horrifying, but you know, people need access to it because they have all sorts of horrible personal situations. That's that that's potent. But increasingly, people on this side want to say there's not, there's so much nothing wrong with it that I'm going to go around and tell you happily that I availed myself of this because I was on tour and I couldn't, you know, I I couldn't be bothered to bring this baby to term. Um, Which of course always raises the question of you're rich, you're successful, you're famous. Use a condom. Like what, what, you know, you don't have birth control. (laughs) Like, what are you kidding me? You're not 14. You know, you're not, you're, you know, what do you, what the hell? Go on the pill, have an IUD, you know, have an IUD, you know, make the guy wear a condom, have an IUD and make the guy wear a condom at the same time. Like, you know, wear a seatbelt. Like if you get into a car crash, you're not supposed to say, well, I should have been allowed to drive hundred miles an hour without my seatbelt. I, I don't know. It's, um, and, and, and this is where this can go bad for the, the same way that this stuff can go bad for Republicans who go too far with it. Noah, I just wonder can it go bad for Democrats 
if there's too much of that? Of course it can. <clears throat> okay. Of course it can. And Republicans can lead Democrats into a box canyon on this issue. I wrote about this for the website. It's not yeah. hard, as Christine said. The activist left has driven this party far outside the mainstream of what Americans actually believe when it comes to abortion. And when they talk about it in, New York, in the New York Times as a clump of cells, or as Abe wrote about a few years ago, um, when Governor Ralph Northam talked about making the infant comfortable before he's euthanized out of the womb, yeah, people aren't going to respond very favorably to that sort of thing. So yes, there's <laughs> every opportunity for Republicans to make hay out of this thing. What they don't want to do, John, respectfully, is second guess whether a woman should have used contraception the night before no i'm no one I'm wants to talk about that phoebe bridgers i understand no one wants to talk that's about me phoebe bridgers. i don't I'm, I'm i don't want to talk about trail. phoebe bridgers vagina yeah contraceptive really scolding is not a winning political issue oh i agree other people's behaviors isn't a winning political issue there, there needs to be an element of liber libertarianism here to the republicans argument that i don't think conservatives are comfortable with but i think is a much more winning issue Okay, can I make a defense of the contraception shaming I just did? And maybe Adam can help me out here. This is what people say. I mean, you guys are all, this is what people said. It's like, uh, you know, we need abortions because a teenage girl is going to go out, you know, isn't, doesn't have impulse control and is going to go out and is going to da 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 da. Or we need it because, you know, a woman has four children and she can't afford a fifth. She's a working class person. She needs to avail herself because her family is going to implode and this or she's or it's the life of the mother or it's because of rape or it's because of incest. Abortion for the sake of convenience has always been a winning issue for the pro-life side. Always. It has always been, I really didn't want a baby right now, so I aborted it. Is not a positive way to approach this matter. And contraception shaming is basically what that is. That is really, you're like 32 years old, you're like upper middle class and you make $250,000 a year and you had a slip up. I love being on okay. this show and there's zero chance I'm going to uh, join in on the contraception shaming. Uh, but I, I will say, I mean, to the, the greater point, I think Americans are comfortable talking about not just rights, but also responsibility. Um, and I think a big part of the debate, that's a, very, really, that's a better way to put it than I put it. Thank you. Well, and well, to extend the point a bit more, I think part of the conversation that's going to follow if, if Roe is struck down is going to be not just about individual responsibility, but social responsibility. And I think it'll be very interesting to watch folks, especially on the center left, but on both the center left and center right, sort of debate what does what what does society owe, right? Now, you don't have a right to, you know, social help just because you had a kid, right? But on the other hand, I think a lot of people on both sides of the aisle recognize that society does have some kind of obligation to help the vulnerable, including children who are born into difficult situations. And I'm being Catholic, I'm equally comfortable with both contraception shaming, but also sort of a, social, a kind of social justice of a kind um, in terms of what, what we collectively owe the most vulnerable. And I'm very interested to see how that plays out um, aside from this rights conversation. Well, that that is, of course, one of the great shaming, the left wing shaming of, of of the right. Right. Which is like you don't want abortion, but you don't want to help poor baby. You don't, you don't want to help poor babies. And then the right will say, well, you know, government help doesn't help. It actually, you know, miserates or 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 blah, blah, blah. But it is actually it's a strong it is the strongest. Again, you want to 
deal with people at their strongest argument points, right? That is yeah. the strongest argument that the left makes about the rights, the airiness with which with, with, with the right has always said it was pro-life, which is, oh, really? So game out the consequences of your of of your desideratum becoming law and being being how the how the, the law of the land is. Yeah. What are you yeah. going to do about about millions of unwanted children, for example? Right. Roe Ro has saved a lot of people from having to think very hard about these sorts of questions. And it's going to play out now. And I mean, maybe to extend the point further, to the extent that that the argument about abortion from pro-lifers like me has been about the life of the child and not the sins of the mother or the doctor. Um, well, then that conversation can't just end with the abortion issue. It does have to go to, well, what are we going to do collectively to help um, to, to help support and protect the life of that child beyond just the point of birth? And that doesn't necessarily point to an all-encompassing welfare state. I certainly don't think it does. But it does require more than just saying, hey, congratulations, kid, you're born. Let's hope your mom and dad don't screw this up for you in the next 18 years. Okay, uh, and final- I sort of look forward to that debate. Okay, final question for you. Is there a universe in which you can see that this whole argument, well, it was a draft, it came out in February. It's one of the first things you said to me. Remember, what we're reading here came out in February. We yeah. have no idea what status this draft is. Once you've seen this at work yeah. and you know the histories of uh, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and, uh, and Barrett, do you think that this decision will look markedly different in in june unless they're doing whatever they can to get roberts to sign on as well so from from the start of this case i thought the most likely outcome was the roberts outcome a, a rollback of casey but they wouldn't need to go all the way to roll back row um that's where i thought this was going to go having seen this draft opinion i don't really see anything here in the opinion itself that's going to alienate the other four conservatives on the court. In fact, I think Alito did a very good job of sort of tying up, to, of, of nailing down the points on which there's consensus, um, but leaving space for individual justices to go a bit further, right? You can imagine a justice like Barrett, who spent her whole career studying stare decisis and precedent, maybe saying a little bit more about what this means for precedent generally. You can see Justice Thomas writing a separate opinion, going much further on perhaps what the privileges or immunities clause means for the right of unborn children. He's, Alito's opinion tees up a lot of those issues for separate opinions, but never in a way that might force a sort of make or break decision for one of the conservative justices to, to leave the, the majority. Okay, and a final question. Sure. Given that it's five votes for, and that this is the decision that is written, where do you think Roberts goes? Roberts, this will now be, assuming this is, you're right, this will now be a majority opinion. Roberts goes with the minority? Doesn't this more closely reflect his own jurisprudential view than the view of the minority? I think that, again, having already gotten the situation wrong from the start, (laughs) um, my view is I think Roberts would still write separately saying that I agree the Mississippi statute can be upheld and that there needs to be a partial rollback of Casey. We didn't need to go all the way to the Roe issue. And he'd probably say something like, uh, I, I may well agree with what was said. I don't think we needed to go there. But I think he'd want to send a signal about the court's approach to stare decisis in other cases. 
um, and say, we don't need to roll back every precedent the first time we reach it. Um, we can do things a little, little by little, but um, who knows? I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that at this point, Roberts would rather have a six, three majority than a five, one, four majority. Right. Okay. So that's my question. So that would be, he might want a six, three, or he would say what he would say, I concur in part. And I dissent in part. Is that, it is would be this... called a, it's, it's so if you, the technical term is I concur in the judgment. So the court reached the right outcome. It right. upheld the Mississippi statute, but I'm not signing on to the full reasoning of the majority's opinion. So where does that score? Where does that score his vote? Oh, it's uh, it's it's five one three. It's 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 that's that's how you can. Oh, okay. Planned Parenthood versus Casey was three three three. This is six right. six three on the outcome, five one three on the reasoning. So the outcome is so when you when you count it, yeah, you say it's six three. Yeah. In other words, if it were a box score and not, you know, the Talmud, is it a is it a run? Is it a run? Is it a run for the Alito team or is it a run for the Breyer team? It's a run, but not an earned run, John. These things are counted differently. Well, earned runs are still runs. So, okay, All right. Adam, uh, this is this may be our longest podcast. Yeah. Sorry about that. What do you think? Yeah, it's like an hour 24. So I'm sorry to have kept you all. You always had that. You always had. You can always turn it off. So if you got to this point, I assume you enjoyed what you were hearing, and I'm very grateful that you took the time and spent the time listening to us. Uh, Adam White of Every Institution in America, thank you very much for joining us, and for Christine, Abe, and Noah. I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>